and and by having this data you know what he's like you know where he lives you know if he's she or Shuni, dep- depending on what holidays he makes calls hmm. i mean there's just so many different things one can get out of this data that will allow to offer a lot more granularity and information in kind of the bigger policy picture that one tries to draw It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. If you can picture it, Yemen is a small rectangular country tucked away at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. It's got Saudi Arabia above it, Oman to the east, and across a narrow strait, the Horn of Africa, Somalia, Ethiopia. Other than that, many people, myself included, don't know that much about Yemen. When it comes up, I often hear about it in the context of Islamic extremism as an al-Qaeda training ground. We tend to paint in broad strokes. To understand more about Yemen and the lives of Yemenis, big data can help. There are a number of ways, but today I'll talk to someone who has done research using cell phone records to try and get a sense of the patterns of everyday life in Yemen with lessons for other countries where it might be hard to do research. It's really fascinating stuff, which is coming up in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. tell you a number sure uh the number this week is actually related to last uh tuesday which was a leap day as Mm -hmm. you may know we found that there were on average 850 fewer births on leap day than on the days around it the birth rate goes down pretty significantly if somebody that's given birth to a child i think that there is a little bit of control mentally over when you give birth and i think that it's just it like I mean, you can't hold it in, but you know, like... Yeah, even I know that. But I'm saying, like, I think that there is some mind over matter, probably, that's involved over that. Would you believe that maybe people are also then, like, scheduling inductions or C-sections around it? I I had to get her out of me the day that they would. I scheduled my induction. I'm like, get her out. (laughs) What's your kid's name? What's her name? Stella. What's her birthday? Uh, July 25th. That's a good birthday. So here to talk a little bit more about the weird math of leap days, in particular leap day births, is Carl Bialik. And I will tell listeners that the leap day this year has already passed, so you'll have to abide a little talk about something that's already passed. Or you can stock this uh, podcast away for four years and listen to it then, and it will be relevant again. But Carl, uh, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to What's the Point, and thanks for looking into this. My pleasure. So you looked into this sort of numbers around births in particular, but leap days in general feel like one of these days where people in our world, it's just so statistically interesting and so weird that there's like lots of stuff to dive into. Yeah, and I find all of it fascinating, but I've always been, or at least since I was a kid, I've been interested in this aspect of it because I went to see the musical by Gilbert and Sullivan, Pirates of Penzance, and in the plot, there's a guy who's turning 21 years old And that's when he is allowed to leave the pirate ship that he's working on. He's been promised to them for 21 years. Turns out that he's been promised until his 21st birthday. He was born on February 29th. He's only five. He has to spend his whole life on the ship. That powers the whole plot. And it always got me thinking, 
huh, maybe it would kind of suck to only have a birthday every four years. Is I this wonder... like the Carl Bialik mathematical like origin story? Was that yeah, there's a lot of baseball weird mixed math? in. Okay, yeah. It's definitely the Carl Bialik leap day math origin story. <laughs> so you yeah. knew you wanted to write a leap day piece at some point. Well, and I wanted to look into the births. And also, though, with my usual 538 hat on, I was a little skeptical. Like, we probably wouldn't find anything. This is probably not something people think about. That was what I thought going in. But, you know, we asked for data and then we check. So I asked the CDC and it turns out there really is a drop in February 29th births. And we were pretty skeptical at first, but it looks like a real thing. And why would there be a drop? It seems like a lot of parents think about the first few years of their kid's life and what it'll be like when they can't do what all of their friends and peers can do, which is point to a date on the calendar and say, this is my birthday. This is when I'll celebrate. This is when I turn two, when I turn three. And if you're born February 29th, you might celebrate on the 28th. You might celebrate March 1st. But it's kind of weird in non-leap years. And I think it eventually pays off down the line. It's really fun to have this weird fact about yourself, to have a big celebration every four years, to have fun jokes about turning 10 when you're 40. But for kids... Birthdays are a big deal. Birthdays are a big deal. Exactly. In your piece, you kind of cobble together other data points that make this case that I think has begun to convince me that people are scheduling. So, I mean, what else is floating around out there that makes you sense that, oh, wow, this has been scheduled not on that day? So we looked exactly a week before and a week after, first of all, just to make sure this wasn't a day of week effect, because this only comes every four years. So if we're dealing with leap days that happen to be on weekends, well, all births are way lower on weekends. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you look at a leap day that was on a Wednesday, and then you look at the Wednesday before and the Wednesday after, you should expect to see around the same numbers. We checked snow data to see if there were a lot of blizzards on leap day that were keeping people from being able to deliver uh, or getting their doctors to the hospital or their doulas to their home or whatever. We also looked at March 1st relative to February 29th because it would make sense that people would postpone a a scheduled C-section or an induced delivery uh, by a day, and we did see a bump on March 1st. So you did see these C-sections are higher on the day before or the day after the leap day, which means that C-sections, I guess, are the type of birth that you can most kind of schedule. Yeah. And so people are really trying to avoid that date. You do see some scheduling of inductions, but C-sections are really where people get to kind of play with the birth date of their child. And with C-sections in particular, we see a 15% drop on leap days relative to what we'd expect from a week before and week after. And that seems to be the main driver behind an overall 7% drop in birth. So maybe it's not responsible for me to say this uh, in the the podcast, but I have heard these stories about uh, doctors scheduling lots of C-sections on like Fridays because they want to like go golfing on Saturday or Sunday. This may just be a rumor. But then also there is this phenomenon I think that is real of, of, of births kind of at the very end of a year being more advantageous, like a December. 31st birth because you get an entire year's worth of uh, child tax credit, but only one day of actual child. So it's not like this is the only place where people are really kind of trying to work the angles or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And we also might see after 2001, maybe there was a drop in September 11th births and a rise in September Mm. 12th. Uh, Maybe people avoid the 13th of the month to try to get to the 14th. Uh, we've already gotten some interesting questions from readers, so I may be staying on this beat for a bit and seeing just how much people try to 
kind of control not just how they name their kids but also on what date they're born. Yeah, well, Andrew Flowers has been on and on the naming thing and you've been on on the birthday thing. So at some point, you, your, your two beats will cross paths and then we'll have you on together to talk about this. Uh, Carl Bialik, thank you very much. And everyone can go read his uh, investigation into leap day births on the site right now. Thanks a lot, Jody. And now my conversation with political scientist Fotini Christia of MIT about how she and her colleagues use cell phone data to report on daily life in Yemen. Before we got to the specifics of her findings, I started by asking her about the basic data challenge in that country. In other words, the problem that she's trying to overcome. Here is Christia. So um, Yemen is a fascinating place, Um, though we have quite a bit of anecdotal evidence, it tends to be very selected. And what I mean by this is it's usually from journalists that can be on the ground in very particular places. So there's a lot we don't get to hear about Yemen, exactly because it's so hard to, to do social scientific or analytic work on the ground. So it's not a place that has rich census data. It's not a place that has uh, rich household level data, uh, recent survey or polling data. So, so the type of information we usually have in the developed world is not available in places like Yemen. The data that you are working from, the kind of uh, source for all this is uh, metadata, which I think is a term people here in the U.S. Are, are fairly familiar with, given the last few years of conversations about you know the NSA and phone records and so forth. But it's anonymized cell phone data from 10 million users and hundreds of millions of calls. And this was between 2010 and 2013. So what else do we need to know about this data set? And then talk a little bit about the kind of patterns, as you said, that, that start to emerge. So what's interesting about this data is that it's it's a period where we have a lot of things going on in Yemen. So we have um, the Arab Spring that lasted throughout 2011 all the way to the beginning of 2012. We have uh, drone strikes happening at the same period. We have um, Al-Qaeda elements on the ground controlling parts of, of Yemen in kind of the south. So uh, so this has been, these were very interesting, uh, a very interesting three years. What we tried to look at was uh, seeing whether what descriptives we get just from looking at everyday call patterns. So, um, and very interesting things arose. Again, this is this is we we have other work that tries to be more analytical, and I will discuss this this in a second as well. But even just trying to look for patterns, which is what people tend to do with these uh, big um, data sets, uh, was very revealing. You know, how did you get your hands on this data set? These it's these data exactly because it's it's sensitive and you want to make sure it it stays anonymized. One of the cell phone companies in Yemen agreed to share data for for this particular time period with the, the intent that it will assist us in in uh, understanding aspects of Yemeni life and in helping with the development for Yemen and the country. So the intent was very clearly directed towards development. And uh, so that was kind of the, the agreement behind them agreeing to, to uh, release it. And, of course, everything is fully anonymized, et cetera, et cetera, for privacy concerns. Give us a sense of how wired a country Yemen is. So when you're looking at cell phone data, kind of how reliable of a data set is that in terms of describing the population? 
As I implied, this is a place that, because also there's no 3G connection, so people don't have kind of mobile data, there's only 20% or so internet penetration, but cell phones, there seems to be over 80% of uh, cell phone penetration. So of course, you know, this is measured in terms of a uh, number of SIM cards. And we know that in places like Yemen, on some level, it could be underestimating the number of people that are on uh, the grid because uh, they may share a phone in the household. There's no, landlines are not very prevalent, especially right. not in the rural areas. So we can see how the, how that could, there could be people who are underestimating. There's also some people, of course, that have more than one SIM card. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it's, 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 so I'm trying to explain that it's not one-to-one -one right. equivalency, but there's definitely um, a lot of coverage, as I said, over 80%. And my general sense, I think you will learn over the course of this interview that I don't know that much about Yemen, but uh, my general sense is that it is one of these countries that it's the place no one's talking about, right? It's, it's, it's almost mentioned as the place that no one is actually mentioning, you know, and that, you know, if there are efforts to work in the Middle East and to do maybe counterterrorism or humanitarian work, there's other countries that are kind of like higher on the profile of the priority list. And then all of a sudden, every five years, we turn around and say, oh, wow, Yemen is like actually a trouble spot that no one's been paying attention to in this way. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a lot more attention, obviously, on places like Egypt or Iraq or um, even in places, other places in North Africa. I mean, um, the thing with Yemen is it's, it's hard uh, to, to work in. It's smaller. Um, it's very tribal and very fractured. Um, people actually, on the one hand, we know it for all the kind of as a hotbed for al-Qaeda terrorists. Uh, but at the same time, we're always also surprised that it's not even worse than it is. I mean, it's interesting that in the narrative, it's always that it's troubled. And it's always like, you know, we, we're not there enough. We don't know enough about it. But it's also us feeling real relax that it's not as bad as it could have been, given right. that it's tribal and fractured and all that. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned all of the what we can probably characterize as, as strife or, you know, large events that happened in these three years. But I, I think what I was most struck by is just the way that your data just reveals kind of a pattern of daily normal life. And it's just like you can't emphasize enough that despite the fact that we define these countries by, you know, these bad headlines and these epic events, which your data does also reveal, more than anything, there's just you just kind of see the, the rhythms of the week and the rhythms of daily life. And in these kind of data sets, uh, you can sort of just get a sense of what life is, is like for quote-unquote normal uh, Yemenis. So let's start there. I mean, what did you learn just about the kind of day-to-day -day rhythms? Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, it was interesting to see how much religion defines the uh, everyday life, meaning that activity, call activity starts soon after the first morning prayer. Um, you also see on Fridays kind of a big dip in calls when people attend the Friday prayers that are known uh, because they also involve a large gathering around uh, religious sermons that are being delivered at mosques on Fridays. And that's that's a big part of, of a weekly routine. I mean, the Friday prayer for Yemeni men 
So I would figure that there's just fewer phone calls being made when most of the men are praying. They're praying. They're listening to the sermon. It's interesting to know that they're not multitasking, texting the friends at the same time. <laughs> that would be but a yeah. big scoop if your data revealed that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's none of that. They, they're actually kind of, uh, they're very uh, serious about their, their prayer time. And, and that's, in, that's captured. That's definitely captured in the data. And the, the religious life aspect is also vividly captured uh, during the holidays. So we saw how the pattern of everyday life literally flips during Ramadan. So we, this is a month uh, during the year because it's around the lunar calendar, the celebration. It varies what month of the year it is. But what we see is that during that month when people actually have to fast for the whole day uh, and they break the fast after sunset, you see that they tend to work less, they tend to sleep more during the day, they tend to stay up all night making calls then. So it's a very interesting kind of mirror image of what happens during the day in regular months. Then it kind of becomes the nighttime activity during Ramadan. So religion was definitely there, and we saw it affecting everyday life. Um, we also saw uh, the role of cut being a very kind of big part of, of daily activity. And what I mean by that is we also see a dip in phone calls uh, during the hours, the early afternoon hours where we know people chew cut. And actually, this activity can take anywhere between three to five hours. So describe what cut is and what the activity is and, and just kind of how defining it is as part of the, the rhythm of a day. Yes, so cut is um, a, a leafy plant that uh, is grown in areas, in, it's grown in Yemen, Ethiopia, Somalia, and uh, some parts of Kenya. It's a very popular um, stimulant, so men and women in Yemen like to chew it, and it takes a while for it to kind of kick in. So they're not after immediate gratification in the sense they can chew for three to four hours to get kind of the stimulation from this uh, from this uh, plant. Um, it's uh, it it takes it, it's actually incredible what how big of a part it is from for economic activity in Yemen too. I mean it's a huge market. People spend a big part of their income on cut. A huge amount of water in Yemen is diverted to cut uh, cultivation, which has created a lot of problems for the country. But it, it's interesting to see that it's it is indeed a big part of. of I mean, the it daily really activity. is that prevalent that it shows up on, you know, large aggregated data sets. You can see when people are basically doing their afternoon pick me up stimulant. It's absolutely that prevalent. I mean, there are arguments that there's up to ninety percent of Yemenis who chew. And there's so much, so many variants, and, and you know, people have preferences about which type of plant makes sense for them. They make deals around chewing cut. They discuss uh, family issues. They resolve politics. Some people, even during the Arab Spring, you knew how intense the protests were based on whether people would stop to chew cut. Hmm. So uh, the, it was, a, it was definitely, a, it is a very, very revealing um, aspect of Yemeni life in, in the, in the sense that it, it is a very prevalent aspect of it. And what's interesting is that it, it doesn't, it, all social classes are engaged in it. So it's, it's not a particular kind of subset of the population. And it manifests itself in the data with regards to phone calls that what activity, you see a break and then activity rises up again because there's some, some afternoon stimulation. 
Exactly. And it's, right. it's, it's funny, but it's true that people tend to be very talkative after they chew. So you see them making calls and, and kind of discussing several issues. And it's not just that there's more calls. Those calls tend to also be longer. So um, it's, it's easily associated with the, the effects that the medical effects that we know chewing cut actually has. Right, and it makes me wonder if we could, I'm sure someone out there has this data set, you could probably see patterns of like people in the U.S., you know, their post-lunch lull and then their mid-afternoon coffee break that maybe gets, you know, I wonder how much U.S. productivity increases between, you know, right after that coffee break pretty equivalent yeah no for sure i just i just have a sense that maybe the kick you get from cat is a little stronger than the coffee Um, okay, so one other element, and you, you hinted at it earlier, but that you can sort of see revealed in, in, in the phone call data, you can actually see what happens in the wake of a drone strike. Can you talk a little bit about how that shows up in the data and, and kind of what lessons it teaches us about the effect of drone strikes in a country like Yemen? Yes. So people have looked to call records to try and see if indeed it's possible to detect some sort of anomaly or some sort of shock that comes from the system. So they've they've looked at the earthquakes, for instance, or or they've looked at the effects of other natural disasters. And in this case, it was interesting for us to, to look at a shock that it is exogenous, you know, a drone strike. They don't expect it to hit. And, and we wanted to see what type of effect it has on the level of communications. So we do see, it's interesting to see that they, there are spikes, so we can detect when a drone strike happens. And we validate that against information that we have from the news and from, from the press of when the strike indeed was, was reported. But what we do see is that it, is, that it tends to be a localized effect. So it's there. It's picked up uh, when we look at the volume of calls in the proximate towers from the strike, but it's not something that you can detect on the national level looking at Yemeni calls. So, as you said, we can look at we can see the pattern of cut is uh, is reflected on the national level, but it's such a strike, it's a shock, but we can only see locally. I think I can infer kind of what that means for what's happening on the ground, but it basically means that when there's a drone strike in a particular area, people call their loved ones, people reach out like anyone would in any sort of disaster. Yes, it's interesting. We are also now doing some additional analysis where we are examining the direction of calls. So it's, if it's people calling out from the drone strike, but also if there's some sort of cascade effect, so how many people call them back, and then how many people of, of the ones that were called made more calls to kind of spread the news of the strike, so to speak. And and what we see is that it, there doesn't seem to be any massive form of cascading. So we do note the strikes. They're notable in the call data records. We see that they get people calling their loved ones. As you suggested, we do see that these are the people they call. They call friends and family. But we don't see kind of some sort of massive spread of the information and kind of... Uh, uh, peters out. So um, it's interesting to see that the drone strikes have an effect, but it's a localized effect. I feel like that is the heart of the drone strike conversation is this notion of ripple effects and how targeted we actually can be or how destructive it is to a larger community in general. So 
you know, as you said, you don't have the answers, but what are the questions that are that are coming up for you that you feel like you need to to answer, or how is this advancing that kind of more difficult conversation? I think what was really interesting for us to see was that the this effect was so localized, and again, we we can. It's, this may have implications for policy to what degree, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about how devastating these drone, strike drone strikes are in terms of our profile, in terms of getting people mobilized to join uh, militant groups. And I'm not saying that our research will offer the definitive answer to this, but it's just interesting. Uh, we also note that some drone strikes are not even picked up from um, in the call data, and that's because they tend to be literally in the middle of nowhere. So there's no even any kind of towers in the proximate area. So I guess that, w- that wouldn't be surprising. And that's probably a strategic choice on where and when to target. But the ones that do happen in populated areas, and these are not, I, I want to note that this is, these are not areas kind of in the capital or very big cities. So again, they're, they're less pop- populated than other parts of Yemen. You, we did we did note the strikes, which was kind of the first um, level of of uh, our analytic work. But then we we're very interested in trying to understand how the information about the strike propagates and what sort of effect it has in terms of an informational cascade. And we saw that this was this effect was very limited. So our first reaction was, hmm, maybe these drone strikes don't have as kind of a huge impact. As, as the detract are as people who are against drone strikes want to think, uh, or it may just be that this is not how information gets disseminated in places like Yemen. So it may be that it's not really the phone calls on the individual level from people that experience the strike. They're kind of in the vicinity of the strike that are problematic about you know, that get people militarized against the U.S. or trying to join groups, etc. It could just be that the local imam, for example, just says something at the Friday sermon that has to do with a drone strike, and that's how people get mobilized. So I think it would be too simplistic from our side to deduce that because we don't see that having a a big kind of national level um, cascade type of effect. It's it's it doesn't have any uh, important implications, uh, but it's also important to say that on the local individual level, uh, it's 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 a very specific type of effect, and we can actually measure that. So we're trying to get a sense of what it is that we can and cannot say. Is this a combination of U.S. drone strikes and? Saudi Saudi Arabia is doing airstrikes as well, or is this just U.S. drone strikes? Uh, yeah, this is a, this data that we were looking at was from 2010 to 2013. So this was before any sort of intervention from the Saudi side. So these were just drone strikes uh, that were um, U.S. drone strikes with kind of. It's, it's presumed that there is a general backing of, of the Yemeni mm-hmm. government right. behind it. But I just wanted to uh, give you a sense of how we went about this. We, there is this, uh, the data that the New America Foundation is collecting in terms of drone strikes. And uh, we overlaid information we had about the location and timing of those events from, from that data against the call data records that, that we had from these areas. So this is how we were able to see if, if, if we indeed detect uh, kind of the anomaly caused or the expected anomaly caused by an exogenous shock such as the drone strike.
So in this time period, 2010 to 2013, you mentioned, along with all the many other things we've discussed, uh, the Arab Spring was in your data set. So how was that reflected, I guess, in Yemen, but also, you know, Yemen was one of many, many countries that had this. And we think of the Arab Spring as being very kind of tech driven and cell phone organized in a way. So was that reflected? Yeah, so that was that was very interesting. Indeed, we see uh, we see a lot of cell phone activity. We see a lot of SMS. What was interesting about Yemen, which was not the case in other parts of the Arab world that experienced the Arab Spring, like Egypt, for example, is that the, it doesn't have. Uh, there's no 3G network in Yemen, so there was no no use of social media and the internet the same way that it was the case in Egypt. So. All the mobilization that was not happening through word of mouth was happening through cell phones. So that makes our data particularly interesting in the Yemeni context uh, because there's so much that could be captured in the actual uh, call data records. So there we tried to use, leverage the role of mobility kind of because we have information not just of who calls whom and from where to where, but also, yeah, this, this, the, the location aspect, kind of the antennas were, were critical in that regard. So we, again, geolocated and coded all the Arab Spring events, protests, bombings, attacks, violent, nonviolent from the side of, of, of the government and the police. And we tried to see whether uh, we noted, kind of, we could see kind of an increase, a surge in activity. But we are also interested, and in, we're very much working on this, in trying to understand the collective action around um, protests. So how people mobilize, uh, who are the people that kind of rise up as lead revolutionaries, and, and what are the characteristics, what makes kind of a lead revolutionary uh, in a context like this, because we have information about these people before the Arab Spring, during and after. So we can we are able to see kind of how their network evolves. But wait, are you implying that, that there's a little more granularity to some of this data that you can actually get down to specific protesters and see the, the information going through them as, as a locus in this network? Absolutely. So, of course, this data, as I said, is anonymized, and our intent is by no means to create some sort of blueprint of how to suppress revolutions. There are other people working on that, yes. <laughs> exactly, that authoritarian governments could use. I mean, that's obviously not the intent, and, and I think that's also the reason why we would never present these results on kind of the individual level. But, but there were very interesting dynamics on the ground in terms of how people mobilized around these events. So, you had um, people call, uh, gathering around what was called University Square or later was called Change Square in Yemen. And these at the beginning tend to overwhelmingly be students. And we see uh, the, you know, we have a presumption that probably students mobilize differently than tribals who, who came down and kind of joined the so-called counter-revolutionary camp. Because what was interesting in Yemen was you had the students on one side and then on a different square, which was ironically Tahrir Square in Yemen, you had the government supporters organizing. So we're trying, we're, we're actively working on this now. We're trying to understand what the different mobilization patterns are between tribal uh, people from the tribes versus students, uh, because we think that's, that could be very interesting in terms of uh, how people mobilize around violent and nonviolent events in a place like Yemen. And so you would just see, you know, a, a spike in activity, and then you could correlate that to 
uh, an event that happened, you know, an hour later or so forth. I mean, how quickly of a turnaround, you know, was this spike first and then real life event? Yes, some of the things, and again, this is preliminary, but we, we could see that the, for some of the events, they were even organizing kind of the night before. So we saw a certain kind of set of calls and then these same people appearing at the square the next day. So it wasn't all kind of a last minute uh, type of intervention. We also saw that some of these events we get blackouts for, meaning that it seemed like the antennas were getting shut down, mm -hmm. which we could see the government uh, uh, doing that uh, to kind of prohibit uh, communication. So that would have been more difficult for real time. And you could see why the protesters may have been planning ahead on how exactly to to go around this issue of of, of the shutdown of the of the antennas. So what you're describing there seems like it starts to get at something that could potentially be predictive, not just reflective. Yeah. So uh, we all would like to also be able to say something that's not just about describing past events. I think we can we can conclusively say that we will try to get a very good picture of that would describe the events, but then. Uh, one would have to think hard about how much of this generalizes and how much of it generalizes within Yemen for future events and how much it may generalize outside Yemen for other parts of the Muslim world where protests may be uh, something that will come up. Um, let me ask a kind of half-baked question about the Arab Spring. You know, it was a movement that had a sort of promise of technology, and, and as we've described it a little bit, was sort of driven by technology. Um, and there was the, you know, the Twitter revolution, the quote-unquote Twitter revolution uh, before that. And I think in the, you know, Arab summer or Arab fall or whatever you want to say came after the Arab spring, there's been this maybe reckoning with the fact that you can have technology and organizing and fast moving, you know, mobilization, but the sort of civil society that comes after that was maybe a harder process. So I don't know. I don't know. You, you are thinking about these things much better than I am. And I'm just wondering kind of how you think of technology versus what comes next. No, I think this is an absolutely excellent question. I think it, it just shows that people had new tools. So it wasn't just having to rely on word of mouth or some tribal leader or, or just uh, the imam at the mosque kind of uh, uh, mobilizing them around a cause. And now they had the power in their own hands using cell phone calls SMS to go about it. In the Yemeni context, as I said, the social media was was not a was not a, a big part of this, but we know it was in other places like Egypt. But the the big question there was: uh, Is this enough? Having people mobilized around the cause, and how do you keep them mobilized after kind of these? these events go away and and this is where you do see the role of institutions so in in the context of egypt you had very strong pre-existing institutions in the form of the army for example and and you saw that that end up dominating politically the scene um later uh, as things progressed in yemen where the institutions were weaker you saw that there was a, a competition among uh different tribes that tried to kind of fill the void, the, the political and leadership void that was left after the removal of that long-standing president. So you see that uh, technology on its own, uh, of course, it's not enough, and, and there's still an important role for institutions and an important role for civil society and, and strengthening civil society um, that takes time. 
and and all, doesn't always have the desired effects. I mean, we saw that, as you said, a lot of people see the Arab Spring t- turn into, some people would call it the Arab winter. Because we might be at winter already, quite, yes. It didn't quite have the, um, the after... Uh, the, the effects that we had we had hoped and anticipated. I think there was a lot of excitement, um, but then because of other structural realities on the ground, um, it, the, the kind of hope didn't quite become a reality. I wonder, just taking a step back and looking at uh, all the different stories that come out of this data set, what do you, just as a researcher, as a person, kind of like? Do you like those little glimpses into daily life and the daily routine? Or, you know, maybe a soccer team does really well and everyone's calling each other. Or do you like the stuff that's more, I don't know, policy-oriented or about development or so forth? The fascinating thing about this data is that you can see both and you can see kind of the confluences and synergies between these two. So, for instance, uh, you are interested about the you're interested in the larger political patterns. For instance, who shows at a demonstration? Who takes a leadership role in a demonstration? But you also want to know what is this guy like uh, when and and by having this data, you know what he's like. You know where he lives. You know um, who he calls and who his friends are. You know if he's. She or Sunni, depending on what holidays he makes calls. Hmm. You know, if he's rich or poor, depending on how much phone credit he uses. I mean, there's just so many different things one can get out of this data that will allow to offer a lot more granularity and information in kind of the bigger policy uh, picture that one tries to draw. And I think what's interesting is that people have been using such data very actively for uh, epidemiology, uh, for health, for development more broadly in these parts of the world that are data scarce and, and difficult to access. But what I was trying to highlight with this piece and with our efforts to try to look at this data set more closely is that there's a lot to be said about collective action and political activity um, that can also be captured in, in these data sets. And I think a place like Yemen is particularly interesting in that regard. So I wonder what other kind of data backdoors there are into inaccessible or violent countries uh, besides cell data. Um, this is this is very interesting, and, and people have been trying to, to 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 figure this out. I think what was what I found particularly interesting for some of the recent research out of Iraq and Syria, people look at uh, night lights, so they see, they see the fact that there is where there is less electricity, and where where there is less light night lights. What that means about the presence of the government. There were some researchers hmm. that did some recent uh, work on that out of Syria. There's another really interesting um, piece of information that, again, comes from satellite imagery, where you can see how many homes were burned down and pillaged after um, some of the areas were claimed back by ISIS, because there were some arguments from the Sunni side in Iraq that there were retributions. So when the Iraqi army was taking back areas, that they were actually 
um, you know, burning down homes, etc., presuming that these people had collaborated with the Islamic State. It's interesting, you know, what I wanted to emphasize here is that there's a lot you can see from these type of data sources, but unless you triangulate the information with actual um, qualitative or survey data on the ground, it's very hard to know what the underlying mechanism is. So for, for that discussion in Iraq, you had the Sunnis claiming that it was people burning down their houses because they claimed that they were collaborators. And then you had the Iraqi army saying, no, these were all pl places that had been booby-trapped by the Islamic State. So we, they were actually dangerous for us and for the population, and we had to destroy them. It's very hard to know what's, uh, where the truth lies, maybe somewhere in between. But I think the, the bigger picture here, and this is something we're also trying to do with the Yemen data, we're also... We, have, we are trying to create a sense of how the revolution played out based on call data records, but we're also conducting interviews, and that's the, the intent to also have rich interview data with actual participants in the revolution to try and see what their side of the story was, but to also try to understand the ecology of how information was communicated and spread besides the, the call data. So it's both for validation purposes to see if our story makes sense, but it's also for... Uh, external validity, more broadly meaning trying to understand to what degree it applies to collective action and communication through other means, not just through phone calls. And do you think there are lessons for the United States and other developed countries, or is this really about places where there isn't that kind of easy access? So I think there's definitely lessons for the U.S. in terms of, um, you know, trying to think very creatively about measurement and about uh, all the types of information that's available to us to try and make informed decisions. I think the, the big thing there is one, uh, respecting privacy. We have been kind of targeted that, that the U.S., you know, it's out there, we don't respect privacy, we, the way we use this data may not be as uh, well-intentioned as we like to present, and I think this is an important thing. I think making sure that it's transparent, anonymized, and, and what the actual intent of this research is. I think the, these, all these things are, are important when we use data like this. But I also, I also believe that another kind of big part in, in using this information is not forgetting that you also need to know kind of the, the view on the ground. So to the degree that you can get a sense from individuals whether what you're seeing in the big data seems to be consistent with what they're experiencing on the ground, I think that check for the truth mm -hmm. is still important. We don't have to just rely on that anymore in this, in this data, uh, poor places, that's good to know, but we, we still have to validate. Uh, Fotini, Christia, thank you so much for joining us. This is really fascinating and important work, so I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. We had studio help from Tony Chow. Our intern is Jonathan Yales. And special thanks this week to Brianna Breen. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter, that's Jody with a Y, or email me at podcasts at 538.com. That's podcasts with a P. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast, which, if you're not listening to, you should start listening to as soon as I finish this next paragraph. 
Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating or a review. It really does help others discover the show. You can find all of our shows, this one, our elections podcast, our sports podcast, on our brand new landing page on the 538 website, 538.com slash podcast. It looks kind of pretty. Thanks for listening. See you soon.